This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the Swedish industrial giant Atlas Copco. With a market cap hovering around 50 billion US dollars, Atlas Copco is a dominant player in the air compressor and vacuum pump markets. It's returned a 40x over the past 20 years for its shareholders. And to break down the business, I'm joined by Stephen Pace, head of European equities at Bailey Gifford. Bailey Gifford has owned this business for over four decades. And Stephen still has the handwritten research notes from the original investment made in the mid-80s. So we thought this was a proper fit. We cover the rich corporate history, including how one family, the Wallenbergs, also referred to as the Swedish Rockefellers, have played such a major role in the history. We get an overview of pneumatic energy and the importance of the air compressor market. And we explore what makes this corporate culture so noteworthy to both insiders and outsiders. Please enjoy this breakdown of Atlas Copco. Steven, thanks for joining us on Business Breakdowns. Thank you for having me. Today, we're covering Atlas Copco. You had me at industrial conglomerate with a century and a half of corporate history. I had the microphone ready once you pitched me on that, but it's likely a name that's less familiar to our audience. And the intrigue goes well beyond what I just described. So maybe to kick things off, you can give us a quick sketch of what makes Atlas Copco such an interesting business to break down. Sure. We've been lucky enough to invest in it for almost four decades I'm slightly biased, but I think it is one of the best engineering companies in the world. It's the second most valuable listed company in Sweden. However, very few people outside of Sweden have actually ever heard of it. It's not a consumer-facing company like IKEA or Spotify. It's B2B. However, if you asked any purchasing manager in the world looking for the highest quality, most energy-efficient air compressor or vacuum pump, they would know exactly who to go to. The company also epitomizes the type of industrial champion that you can find in Europe if you look hard enough. It dominates these niche markets. It has a very unique corporate culture centered around its decentralized organization, which is really important. As you pointed out, it has had the same family ownership for almost 150 years. It's been highly acquisitive. It generates high returns in capital. And of course, it's been very successful. So even over the last 20 years, its total return has been about 4,000% or a 40-bagger, as Peter Lynch would call it. So I think we can learn a lot from it. There's a lot of different topics there to get into. Maybe we start at the product level. You described a little bit about what they're selling here, air compressors, vacuums. Can you bring those to life in terms of a few examples of what Atlas Copco is selling and who they might be selling to? This is a company selling productivity solutions, whether it's air compressors, vacuum pumps, or power tools. These products are used by every industry right across the world. And it's selling products where the customers really care about productivity. And this is because the actual equipment 
is a relatively small capital outlay. A lot of the total cost of ownership comes um, through the operating, operating costs in the energy. It's really an install-based champion as well. But the main divisions at the moment, about 50% comes from compressor technique, which is selling air compressors, about a quarter is from vacuum pumps, the other quarter so comes from industrial tools and power. Looking at the compressor business, which is really the crown jewel, this business generates between 80 and 100% returns in capital. Now, what is an air compressor? It's very similar to com- a combustion engine. I mean, they require some basic components, a pump cylinder, a piston or a screw, a crankshaft. And these basic components can help supply air for filling up objects. It could be inflating your tire, inflatable pool toys, or they could supply power for operating tools, drills, nail guns, grinders, sanders, spray guns. And even with the bigger industrial applications, they are used to spray crops, ventilate silos and agricultural facilities. They help run pneumatic machinery, obviously, in manufacturing plants. They even operate laundry presses and dry cleaners everywhere, food and beverage, manufacturing, oil and gas. Every single industry we could probably think of has a compressor. And I think I've seen a stat that said that nine out of 10 factories in the world have a compressor. Now, it's quite hard to fact check that, but they are really ubiquitous. Yeah, if it's anywhere close to that number, quite impressive. In terms of a consumer or a residential use case, you think of the nail gun and what a compressor can do there, but did not appreciate the industrial use cases. Is there a natural substitute to a compressor in terms of the use cases that you were describing, whether it's in a factory or as it relates to crops? What would be the alternative to an air compressor if there is one? Not really. There's a reason why a compressor is often called the fourth utility after electricity, petrol, and gas. It is so rudimentary in terms of powering tools. Before that, it was hydraulics, but pneumatic energy and the kinetic energy from that is just absolutely critical to running our societies. Yeah, pneumatic energy is one that doesn't get enough attention. And you can think about the productivity, even going back to the use case of the nail gun, if the alternative is the manual wind up and power versus moving from one side to the next, there's certainly a productivity benefit there. That's a great overview. And we can get a little bit into market size in a second. But I did want to jump to the other main section of the business, which is vacuum pumps. Describe a little bit of what's going on there. I know it's not the residential use case. So what is a vacuum pump and how does their industrial vacuum business work? The simple answer is that it's just the opposite of an air compressor. One's pushing out air, one's sucking in air. And this is a part of the business Alice has been building up through the 2000s. It's been very acquisitive over many years now. It had spotted the trend towards increasing uses and applications for vacuum pumps. So they started building up this portfolio. And vacuum pumps are really more exposed to the semiconductor and electronics markets. About 60% of their business would be semiconductors. The main exposure would be to Asia-Pac as well, geographically. Vacuum pumps are required where basically the pressure needs to be below atmospheric pressure or where the operating environment needs to be to clean. So that's why you see vacuum products included in the semiconductor manufacturing supply chain. You see them in fabs, whether it's manufacturing flat panel displays, solar panels. As the semiconductor production process has increased in complexity, you need increased purity, 
the smaller and more integrated a semiconductor device becomes, the more important it is to efficiently absorb particles from that. It's very much like the compressor business. The outlay is relatively small. The vacuum pumps will probably be less than 5% of the total cost of the fab, but a much larger component of the energy cost, which is exactly the same as compressors, which is why energy efficiency is by far the most important feature here in the USP. That 5% number is helpful for context in terms of thinking how they fit into the overall value chain. How do you think about the market as a whole? And you can separate air compression from the vacuum business or combine them. But when you think about Atlas Copco being a market leader, how do you measure that, whether it's on a European scale or a global scale? Being the market leader, one of the easiest outputs to look for is market share. Again, this is quite hard to validate, but we think it's the compressor business, about 30% global market share. And that is at least two times bigger than the next competitor, which is Ingersoll Rand. And that should tell you that this market is still very fragmented. Now, one of the attractive characteristics and one of the factors of success for Atlas has been its ability to consolidate this fragmented market. It's been very successful in rolling up a lot of these compressor businesses, distribution companies, and service businesses. So that's how we look at it. It's simply they are growing faster than the markets and they're taking share from the smaller companies that operate in this area. And it's a similar story with Vacuum. They've consolidated and built up a leading franchise. Again, they're the number one player, certainly much bigger than the number two, which is Pfeiffer Vacuum. There are lots and lots of small competitors all over the world, but as it gets bigger, it's becoming more powerful and offering a better value proposition to its customers. That's a good transition to the history of the business and how they got to that point today, some of the consolidation along the way. You mentioned earlier, there's a key Swedish family here that's played a major role in terms of the growth of Atlas Copco, major shareholder involved there. I know this didn't start as a compressor business, but what would you point to as some of the key milestones in terms of corporate history, transitions and pivots, and how they got to the point where they are today as a market leader? There is a huge amount of information on the history of Atlas Copco and the Wallenberg family online. And I have not come across many companies that are perhaps as proud of their heritage and history as Atlas's. And I think that's indicative of the type of business it is. But the history of Atlas is intertwined with the history of this Swedish family you mentioned, which is the Wallenberg family. In the 70s or 80s, there was a relatively famous sociologist called Hans Zetterman who said that if you looked down at Sweden from space, you could see two things, social democracy and the Wallenberg family. <laughs> they are certainly one of Europe's most influential family dynasties. They've been described as the Swedish Rockefellers, the Gettys, but irrespective, they really have helped shape Sweden's economy and politics. And without the Wallenbergs, there would be no Atlas Copco. They have been present for almost 150 years on the Atlas board, challenging, supporting, influencing capital allocation decisions, and encouraging a values and principles-based approach. And they've managed to steward that business to world wars, numerous depressions, and various financial and economic crises. So their role in the success and the growth of Atlas cannot be understated. When it comes to the origins of Atlas, I mean, we're going back to the 1850s when it was Andre Oscar Wallenberg who actually founded the Stockholm and Skilda Bank, which is now SE, or known as SEB. 
And this was the first private bank in Sweden. It was set up to help fund companies emerging from the Industrial Revolution. A couple of decades later, in 1873, he partly overheard an engineer, Edward Frankel, who worked for the Swedish State Railway, ask why there were no specialty companies in Sweden manufacturing railroad materials. Mr. Wallenberg obviously realised that this was a big opportunity, and he got Frankel together with some of the founders, and he set up Atlas. So really, the company's first mission was to make products for the emerging railroad networks that, as you know very well, came to revolutionise trade and push the world into a new era. Beyond that, through the last part of the 1800s, and don't worry, I'm not going to go through every single decade, but they <laughs> had an employee who came back from the US and England as well with pneumatic hammers. They also got their hands on an air pump and basically learned how to engineer these themselves. And for the next couple of decades, they really focused on those two areas, pneumatics and compressors, but they also bought in a lot of IP from Rudolf Diesel and started manufacturing diesel engines. That was up to World War One Investor, which is the Wallenberg family's investment vehicle. That's when it originated, 1916, I think it was. But they had to set up a different vehicle to manage the equity stakes that the family bank had received as collateral from debt-ridden companies in the war. Companies like Electrolux, AstraZeneca, even Atlas, and they still own these companies in their portfolio. And that's over a hundred years. So when we're talking about long-term investment horizons, they can teach us something. Basically, from World War One to World War Two, they developed these two businesses. It was in the nineteen fifties that Marcus Wallenberg Jr. then decided we need to get rid of the diesel business. It's not growing as quickly as the compressor business or the mining business. And from then on, they really started ramping up the consolidation of the compressor markets. They bought Arpec in Belgium, I think it was, changed its name to Atlas Copco from Atlas Diesel. And for the next couple of decades, built up this compressor business and mining business. Early 80s, global recession, early 90s, Swedish financial crisis. So there's lots of cost cutting. This is where the Wallenberg family really helped them. Their experience of having a family bank almost going bankrupt really helped them um, think about having a conservative balance sheet. You can always see the Wallenberg kids around the fireplace being told these horror stories at Christmas time. But that, I think, is one of the reasons why this institution has survived and has been so resilient. And then in the 90s, they had to restructure. They then adopted this decentralized structure, which has really come to define it. And from that point on, really ramped up the consolidation of these markets, growing their compressors, moving international. And at this point, by the late 90s, 80% of revenues came from overseas. Not all of the acquisitions were successful. They tried to break into the US rental markets and the rental and leasing market in the late 90s. That was a bad time to acquire those types of businesses. There was lots of overcapacity, brutal pricing and everything else. The CEO came in during the early 2000s, Gunnar Brock. He then disposed of those acquisitions and put things back on track. And then again, acquisitions, solid organic growth. And then 2014 took the decision to build up the vacuum pump business. And they've continued to build up a franchise there. And that's pretty much where we are today with the four divisions. But the fascinating history is definitely worth looking into. It's really a story of resilience and being opportunistic, spotting the trends early. I think a large part of that has come from the influence the Wallenberg family has had over the company. 
it's unique to see a company with that type of history in terms of an acquisitive nature, but then at the same time, also being willing to make divestitures at the right time. Deal making in general throughout the history of the company. As I was going through some of the research, I saw that at one point in time, they owned Milwaukee Tools, which is a brand we see in the US quite often, and then eventually divested that business. So clearly, it's been part of their DNA for an extended period of time. And even the disposal, people look at the Eprock disposal in 2018. Today, Atlas is maybe worth 50 billion, whether it's US dollars or euros, it's the same now. And Eprock is probably 20 billion. But they took the decision to spin that business off in 2018 from a position of strength. It wasn't to do with restructuring and cost cutting and increasing value over the short term. They did it because they were worried that the company was becoming too big and bureaucratic. So they did it because they were conscious about long-term value creation. They were not doing it to appease any shareholders. And that's the type of decision-making that really gives you an idea of what type of culture and long-term mindset that they have. And what was that business related to? A certain industry or sector? Epiroc, this was surface and underground mining construction tools, is very similar, actually. If you looked at the financial outputs in terms of market shares, operating margins, returns, free capital conversion, it's a very high quality business. It just has a very different set of customers and obviously is exposed to a different capital cycle, mining. And it does seem like the two core businesses today, the vacuum side and compressor side, likely have the same end markets, but that end market in the Epic business might be a little bit different when it relates to the mining customers. But interesting case study, nonetheless, of exactly how they operate the business. How much does the Wallenberg family, whether it be directly or through their investment vehicles, own today? It's actually through their foundations. So in the press, people might think that the Wallenberg family are multi-billionaire families, but they're not. They own the stake in Investor through a couple of foundations. So the direct equity ownership they have is, I think, 22%. And with the dual-class ownership, which is quite common in Sweden, control 46% of the votes. Now, Investor as a vehicle, again, in a similar fashion, owns 17% of the equity of Atlas and 22% of the votes. But their position on the board there cannot be understated. They've been really influential. I think you've laid out a few times the incredible return on capital that you've seen in some of these businesses and alluded to some of the margins. But maybe you could walk us through the sale, what revenue is actually derived from the air compressor business to start. I know there's some element of equipment here, some element of service revenue here, but walk us through the income statement in whichever way you think is the most natural. Looking at the income statement, starting at the top, the revenue line, over long periods of time, this is a company which has been able to compound organically 6-7%. On top of that, supplement that with acquisitive growth, which has been about 2 or 3% over very long periods of time. When it comes to the profitability of the company, as you might expect, this is a company where over the last 20 years, the operating margins have been able to improve from just over 10% to just over 20%. And a lot of that has to do with the business mix and the service potential that they've really tapped into. When we look at the aggregate level, the equipment accounts for about two-thirds of revenue. The service side, which could be simple repairs, it could be aftermarket and spare parts, or it could be total care packages or servicing. 
But each of the divisions has a slightly different ratio of equipment to service. And it's most striking in the compressor business. The service component there is about 40-45%. And that's the highest level. The service component in the compressor business is really what has been driving the increase in profitability. That again comes from the decision to decentralize in the 90s. They realized that the structure that they had was good to grow overseas. But when they realized their customers were demanding more and realized that moving from a customer-focused business to a product-focused business would increase the speed, it would increase sales conversion, it would get them closer to the customer. And then they were able to tap into that massive opportunity in servicing air compressors because back then, no one even knew where their air compressor hid in a factory. It would be maintained by some poor chap who had to come out, last minute phone call. And they didn't really want that. And Atlas realized that there's a huge opportunity to tap into having a much more professional service element to it. And that's why the business has transformed both in terms of profitability, but also in terms of returns. And that goes through the rest of the business as well, but it's not as impressive. In the vacuum pump business, the service side of it is probably just over 20%. There are opportunities to grow that, but this is one of the reasons why, even though the margins might be roughly the same, low 20s, the returning capital is much lower, even though the 25% it makes in vacuum pumps is still pretty impressive. With the service revenue, is this something that they are selling almost like on a contract basis at the point of sale of the equipment? There is some service contract that's attached to it, or is it on a per need basis that they are coming out and servicing the equipment and getting paid there? It's like any kind of install based business where there is a guarantee, maybe for a year, but what they're trying to do is convert more of their customers into a one to one relationship with the sale and end servicing. And as you move up that service ladder, going from simple repairs to having contracts, you're then able to manage the compressor room. You can talk about guaranteeing uptime. You can talk about guaranteeing air quality. And you can do lots of things that the customer over that total cost of ownership over the lifetime of that compressor can really benefit from. They're talking about digitalization. Most of the compressors now are connected. So they have real-time monitoring. There is a huge scope for them to continue growing closer to the customer, but also provide value, which they can then recoup through pricing and contracts. I'd imagine with the sale of a new compressor unit, there'd be some forecast in terms of upfront sale and then service revenue to be generated over the life of the equipment. Do they disclose what that percentage mix is? Yeah. When you look at the total cost of ownership, we have similar dynamics with elevators and escalators and businesses like that. But when we disaggregate the total costs, the original equipment is about 10%. The service and aftermarket bit is not as high as you might think. It's about 10% as well. 80% of the cost is coming from energy, powering that compressor. If you think about the cost savings by having a compressor, which is 5% more energy efficient over that 10 or 15 year life cycle, that is what customers really focus on. So when we think about the USP here, the energy efficiency 
of these products is absolutely paramount. It's the most important thing. Obviously, reliability, the ability to service these, keep them running. That's a breakdown. It's 10% from equipment, 10% aftermarket, and 80% from energy. That's an incredible dynamic in its own right. If we just focus on the 10% and the 10%, is it reasonable to assume that as equipment matures, eventually is retired and new equipment is brought on to the extent that they're selling service agreements or generating service revenue attached to each new sale, that eventually the business mix would be essentially 50%, 50% from equipment and service revenue over a longer period of time? It's probably easier in compressors. They are almost at 50%. It's perhaps a little bit harder in some of the other divisions. The power technique business, there's quite a lot of rental and leasing. There's probably not as much opportunity for servicing with some of the industrial power tools. But certainly when it comes to vacuum, they are ticking up the ratio of, of service. And this is obviously beneficial for margins and returns as well. So if they can continue developing the service side of the business, which also helps customer loyalty, they're not gouging their customers on price on the equipment or the service. They want to make sure that they have a long-lasting relationship with them. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of industries which will gladly sell equipment at zero margin or even at a loss to generate that service revenue. So the fact that they're still able to generate a nice, healthy, attractive margin is icing on the cake. In terms of the cost profile of the business, I'm sure there's some upfront costs associated with manufacturing the equipment. Can you talk a little bit about that and a little bit more about how their actual supply chain works, whether it's with new equipment or even aftermarket products, how they get that on site, and a little bit more about how their internal supply chain works? This is a common characteristic in high margin, high return industrial companies as well, that it's relatively asset light. It's almost like an assembly shop. Probably close to 75 of all the components that are used in compressors or vacuum pumps are actually bought in. When I asked them, okay, so this is just an outsourcing model, they were like, no, 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 it's not outsourcing. We leverage the capacity and competence of our business partners. So they see it as much more of a two-way relationship, which again goes back to that cultural values-led approach. But this is one of the other reasons why they are pretty flexible when it comes to working capital through the cycle. And this is also another reason why companies like Alex Copco, um, companies even like Schindler and Coney, the lift companies, that also have this assembly approach, are able to generate extremely attractive returns and extremely high levels of free cash flow and conversion of that cash flow. So that's the approach that we take to manufacturing. Then it comes to the decentralized organization where, as I said, they have four main divisions, but within that or underneath that, they have 23 business units. Underneath that, they have almost 400 autonomous smaller companies operating their own P&Ls. This is the other part of decentralization where they have given up some of the efficiency gains they would have achieved by having something slightly more centralized, but they've empowered their smaller businesses to take decisions themselves and really try and grow the business organically without having that oversight from the head office. With any kind of decentralized network and company, you need extremely good benchmarking as well. And they have exceptional data collection and reporting, which is very transparent and very accurate. So they can tell immediately where the outliers are and help them. But when it comes to the actual organization, those business units are selling through individual product companies. 
They have a network of sales channels, whether it's direct or through a distributor. Most of the business is sold directly, particularly for the large customers, but they will use distributors to reach smaller companies. But over time, we've seen them acquire a lot of these distribution centers because they've got such a broad product portfolio. When Atlas acquires one of these distributors, it might have previously been 30% Atlas Copco brands, 30% Ingersoll brands and various other brands as well. But when Atlas Copco takes them over, it can basically get rid of all the other stuff and sell the Atlas Copco brand. Now, most of the products, certainly in compressors, will have that Atlas Copco brand. These are kind of the high-end compressors, but they have a multi-brand approach. And particularly when they're moving into emerging markets, they have an entry-level brand And that's to protect them from low-cost competition, but it's also to make sure that the price premium on the Alex Copco brand persists. So that's the distribution side of it. And then they have close to 300 service centers all around the world because they really want to get as close to their customers as possible. They will have people in the factories almost working there so they can give feedback, help those companies operate in the most efficient way And again, this is all going back to looking after their customers. The culture is that they really have a stakeholder um, privacy rather than a shareholder. They look after their customers and their employees. Culture was something that continuously came up in my research. And there was one mention that the company and the broader investment group tends to attract the highest quality graduates from Swedish universities. And I had to check in. We have a Swedish resident in the Colossus family, Eric Makaya. And I just wanted to check to make sure that wasn't just hyperbole. But he said, yes, that was the case. There's an incredibly strong culture and it's felt throughout the country. And I can't tell you how different that is from the US where you don't hear too many top graduates going into the industrial complex. One point it was the banks and at one point it was the tech companies and it continues to evolve, but really incredible to see how much that reigns through. And I think it can start from the top in terms of the family work all the way through in terms of the decentralized structure. So it's a really impressive model that they built. Going back to one of your early points on the financial model, you mentioned over time, it's been 6 to 7% revenue growth. Is that simply a certain percentage coming from price, a certain percentage coming from volume? Is there anything unique to that breakdown? It's well north of what I would think of as a GDP type growth. As you said, it's a cyclical business. It's exposed to industrial production, GDP, particularly as it's moving into American markets. There's obviously a mix there. But I think over long periods of time, when you can flatten out these cycles, you're probably right. It's 3 4% volume, a couple of percent on price. And then on top of that is this consistent acquisition strategy. So the unique thing here is that, okay, over the last 20 years, it's a 40-bagger. But you do not need companies to grow 20% plus. It's nice, but you don't need that. If you have the type of opportunity to expand margins, to increase your returns, to convert a lot of that profit into free cash flow, and then to spend a lot of that cash flow buying cheap companies, slotting them into your network and extracting value that way. And again, because it's a network, as it grows bigger, it provides more value to its customers. So the economics here are fascinating and is a great example of a company which is adaptable, resilient, and has been able to grow throughout the cycle and acquire very attractive companies and produce these remarkable returns. There's two questions. Where can we find the next Atlas Copco? And what can it do from here for the next 10 or 20 years? 
What does the consolidated business margin look like today? I think you mentioned it in some of the various business units, and at least one of them trended from 10% to 20%. Where is that today? How much of that does convert down to earnings and then eventually to free cash flow? When you think about potential and to your point, how much additional upside is left from a margin perspective, how do you frame that and think about that opportunity? At the group level, the operating margin has increased from, I mean, go back to the early 2000s, it was 12%. So it's effectively almost doubled at the group level. And a lot of the heavy lifting has been done by the compressor business and now the vacuum pump business. But the other ones are no slouches either. These are very profitable businesses. So the 21, 22% margin then flows down into net profits. Over the last 10, 20 years, it's been able to convert almost 100% of net profit into free cash. The company, as you might expect with a family owner, has a 50% roughly payout ratio. This varies at times, but they spend 30, 40% of free cash flow on acquisitions. So industrials that operate in fragmented markets that have this reflexivity where you've got a stable cash generative business that enables them to acquire and consolidate fragmented markets is a real attraction. And it's a feature in a lot of the big winners, certainly in Europe over the last 10 or 20 years. In the US, there's a few as well. We just did a long series on Transdime and the playbook was quite similar and pulled off with excellent execution. It sounded like in the beginning of the discussion, the market is still very much fragmented and the ability to allocate 30 to 40% of free cash flow towards acquisitions is really impressive. Is that a consistent annual cash outlay? Do they tend to be more opportunistic, making pricier or larger acquisitions at times? How much variance is there from year to year in terms of how and what they're acquiring? The strategy is quite disciplined and they have made mistakes, as we talked about in the late 90s. So they are acutely aware of the types of acquisitions that they need to do. Now, generally, acquisitions get a bad name. It's like fund managers. Most acquisitions destroy value. Most fund managers underperform the index. But under certain conditions, acquisitions create a huge amount of value in the same way as fund managers who have low turnover, active share, typically outperform. And when it comes to acquisitions, Typically, they'll be looking for bolt-on deals, smaller in-franchise acquisitions to bulk up service or distribution. They occasionally will look at adjacent technology, whether it's low-pressure compressors. But then occasionally, they will think about bigger strategic moves. And as I said, back in 2014, they took the decision to undertake some larger acquisitions and bulk up this vacuum technique business now. They always get asked, is there going to be another leg to the business? Where can you reallocate some of this capital which is coming through? But in the current setup, they have so much growth to go for right across the board, particularly in compressors and vacuum pumps, that that's probably the focus for just now. You hit on a good point there in terms of the market's perception of acquisitions. One, I think it's just incredibly hard to model acquisitions. We can debate the value of investment models, but it's incredibly challenging because how are you going to slap in a future acquisition into 
an Excel model with any type of confidence. But I think we've seen, especially in the industrial universe, companies that remain disciplined in fragmented industries that don't necessarily have to move up in size of acquisitions. A willingness to continue to make smaller bolt-on acquisitions actually tends to be one of the key characteristics of companies that do it well over consistent periods of time. And that certainly seems to be the case here. I also think the willingness to divest businesses over time shows some type of market savvy as well. As an investor that's at four decades worth of holding period here, how do you think about the bull case from a forward perspective in terms of what keeps you owning this stock? One of the critical questions when we look forward to the next 10, 20 years, because what we appreciate is the corporate culture here. We've not really talked about how they maintain that culture because there are some quite interesting things in terms of the way they communicate the values and their behaviors to all the employees right across the world. And they have this Atlas Cop called Blue Book. It almost looks like a cartoony type handbook, but I think it's now its 12th edition. It gets revised every two years. It really just spells out how the company and the family expect business and behaviors to be done. I think it's quite a powerful thing when you have that cultish type language. And speaking to CEOs right through the years, going back 10, 15 years, they talk in the same way. They use the same phrases. That's a really important part of the longer term story from here. Because if you're going to hold this for another 10 years, you have to be sure that the corporate culture is going to persist. And I think we're okay with that. Then it comes to thinking about where the upside is. Where has the market just got it wrong? That's probably a culmination of a number of things. It's both underappreciating the power of the customer proposition here, the ability to keep generating higher returns and margins. I think the incremental margin here is probably closer to 35%, for instance. So I think there's a lot of scope for this company to keep moving forward. There are risks, and I guess it depends what your timeframe is. Most industry analysts or commentators or sell-side analysts will focus on the cyclicality of the business. Are we going to see a downturn in semiconductor capex? Are we going to see a prolonged recession in Europe and right across the world? And these are important features and things to consider. However, for us, when we think about risks, beyond the corporate culture changing, it's more of an existential risk. And when we talked about the importance of energy consumption and costs, if we move for instance, to a society where energy was basically free, that would, I think, have quite a profound effect on the business model. There are other considerations within that. Energy might be free, but the transmission, distribution, and everything else might cost. So energy efficiency, I think, is still going to be one of the most important drivers here. So I know I've not specifically answered your question in terms of breaking down the valuation, but we look at this in terms of the implied expectations what are the market's implied expectations? And they're relatively conservative in terms of growth and margins. And then it's thinking about, as you pointed out, some of those features which can't be put into a spreadsheet. The optionality, both the culture and this free cash flow generation offers them to create businesses that we haven't even thought of yet. That's what we try to focus on because it's far too common in the industry to focus on what could go wrong. We're trying to focus on, okay, even if it's a relatively low probability, what might Alice Copco look like in 10 years' time? And when you have that lens, it's a very different approach to investing. 
That's why all the industrial IPOs that came during my time wanted to be sent through the tech research desk because there's a lot more focus on what can go right and the optimism than what can go wrong. It's very much a different lens. That makes a lot of sense. And there's the business side where the risks are there. And then there's valuation side, which is a completely different topic. Out of curiosity, is there a metric that you typically use for this type of business, whether it's the simple price to earnings or EBITDA, understanding that there's many other things that flow into that in terms of the consideration for where it should be? But do you have a metric of choice when thinking about this type of business? On a relative basis, we construct scenarios over five to 10 years when we prefer to use EV to free cash flow. I don't like earnings. Earnings is a made up number, as you are well aware of. Doesn't stop everybody in the industry using that number and a P, but EV to free cash flow and trying to think about an appropriate multiple in five or 10 years is one way we approach that. And then, as I said, the second way we approach that is trying to think about what is implied in the current price. So this is more reverse DCF territory, but using the combination of both of those we try and get a better sense of whether this is going to be mispriced and whether it's going to be a good opportunity to invest over the next 5-10 years, which is really what our investment horizon is. As we wind these conversations down, we like to go through some of the lessons. And I think when you have a business that has 100 plus years of experience, there's a lot of lessons that can be taken away. But what would you point to as someone who's been involved in this name for an extended period of time? as some of the most interesting or surprising takeaways and lessons from being involved in the business? There's lots to learn. From an investment point of view, this over the last 20 years has been very successful, at least in terms of share price and total return. However, it is a cyclical business. And even during that remarkable 20-year stretch, it went through numerous drawdowns, 40 50% plus. There might be some out there that can time markets, but it's just a reminder that one of the best ways to generate and capture the value from innovation and some of these special companies is to buy and hold. And I think that's very hard. There are a lot of behavioral lessons that we can learn from basically just buying it and holding it and not worrying so much about trying to second guess the market in downturns and what the second order effect of a slightly lower GDP number is. If you can find special companies with unique corporate cultures that have the potential to grow and to grow profitably, you just let them get on with it. Kind of sidecar investing where we've been privileged to interact with this organization. So I think that's probably one lesson. And then the second lessons are to do with just how important the corporate culture has been here. Again, we've spent a lot of time trying to really understand that because it helps us in that very difficult process of identifying and calibrating corporate cultures. So there's lots to learn. It's just been such a fascinating company to watch over the last 15, 20 years. I've not been here for 40 years, but I actually have the handwritten notes from one of my colleagues on my desk that was written in 1985. We have all of these things. It's a privilege to see some of these companies perform. On business breakdowns, we have a section where we try to identify a secret sauce. And I would say this might be the business with the most secret sauce we hit it on the surface level. And in my research, I realized there was so much more there between the Wallenbergs, the decentralized structure, the long history. There's so many different things about it. And I have a feeling I'm going to be reading about it a lot more going forward because it's certainly piqued my interest. And on your first point, in terms of long holding periods, your actions follow your words. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate you coming to break down such an interesting business. 
Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Matt. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 